Would you open your Bibles to the book of Psalms again this morning, chapter 11 and verse 3. Psalms 11 and verse 3. The question is asked in Psalms 11 and 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Obviously referring to God has for us something to stand on, which is called a foundation, which by definition is what you build from. You lay a foundation before you build on it. Just like in Psalm 40. He inclined unto me and he heard my cry and he delivered me out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay and he set my feet upon a rock. And God knows that all of us who are his people need to be established, firmly planted, so that we don't waver and fall away. Foundation. You know, on this foundation, when you talk about building, we mentioned also about a verse in Ezekiel 22 in which he describes the leaders, the ministry there, as daubing his people with untempered mortar. Mortar is designed to make solid and sure and steadfast the bricks and the rocks and the stones and the blocks that you set on top of each other. If you don't have good mortar, eventually it'll crumble, it'll fail, and the rocks in the building will fall. Untempered mortar is a type of ministry. What ministers are telling people today, the effect of falsehood. You see, my foundation is my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you can read all you want to about he is, 1 Corinthians 3, the only foundation that can be laid is Jesus Christ, but you can't destroy that. It talks about if my foundations be destroyed. If I'm standing on him and I am steadfast and I am learning about him and I'm taking what he says to live this way, I won't be destroyed. Nobody can knock me off of my foundation. But if somebody can talk me out of all of that, and it's happening as I speak today in thousands of places. If somebody can talk me out of the truth about Jesus, if somebody can preach a new modern Jesus, which is changing things, and this new Jesus, you know, he's different. And you begin to take away from me certain fundamentals of the faith and doctrines, and you begin to tell me they're not important anymore. Or some of our old traditional ways of preaching, you know, and the hymns that we sing, those old outdated hymns that we sing that are no longer useful today because they're so slow and draggy and, you know, they're for choirs. But we're cool today. We got an entertainment factor in the church now. And we got these spiffy new preachers. And people like that because it makes no demands on your life to live a holy life. All you need to do now is go and listen. It doesn't matter what you look like. There was a time people say, well, I can't go to church. I don't have anything to wear. Now they don't care what you wear. It doesn't matter anymore. Suits and ties and trying to have some sort of dignity about coming before the Lord is, is old fashioned. And everybody's cool now. And everything that used to be sacred and sincere has lost that. People are just religious people now having fun, looking for the, where the laughter and the noise is. If my faith is in Jesus, who is the foundation, is in him and what he has said, if I am learning and seeking after him, and as he said, learn of me, and I begin to follow what he said, 
and my faith is rooted in him, then I am on a solid rock. I'm not going to fall. But again, if you can tell me that's not necessary, that he doesn't do today the things he once did, things that I'm counting on him to do. If you tell me that all of that's changed and that was for another age, but it's not for today, what do I have? I just have church. I have a church structure. I have programs and formats and rituals and enlightened scholarship. People that are so smart that, they, you know, they well, since the early days of the Bible, we've had new discoveries today about Scripture and about things, and things have changed now. And, and again, they begin to change everything. Next thing you know, I don't even know what I believe. I don't even know what I'm supposed to believe. The teaching is all about something else. This is happening as I'm speaking to you now all over the world because these are the last days and many will depart from the faith because they're going to be talked out of it. Or what people are hearing is going to shipwreck the so-called faith that they have. It's happening now. This is a sign of the last days, of the end time, when men shall depart from the faith giving heed to ministries seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, Ephesians 4, men who lie in wait to deceive. Devil's got them out there everywhere looking for that soul who's getting tired of trying to overcome and hold on to this plow and uh, all the difficulties that go with being saved and being holy, telling you that that's not necessary. People are letting go and then they're drawing back because the Bible said they would. The Bible said they would. And we're in that particular day now. So the question for us is, are we on a solid foundation? Is our foundation solid? In Luke 6 last week, we said this. There are three things that would define tempered mortar, spiritual things that will hold us together. And we described in Luke 6 these three things. One, that cometh to Jesus. Not come to a system, not come to a church, not come to a movement, not come to some fancy new preacher who's a book writer and a television personality, you could be all of that and be fine, but that's not what you're coming to. You're coming to Jesus. You come to Jesus because you hate your sin. You're sorry about your sin. You come to him to be forgiven, and he forgives you. He gives you new life. He puts new life on the inside of you, a life that is designed to turn you to him, focus on him, and follow after him. Secondly, you hear what he has to say. He that cometh to me and heareth my sayings. It's one thing for you to be here today with your ears open. It's something else for you to listen with a need. I need to know what God wants. More than anything else in the world, I need to know what God wants. Those are the kind of people who generally will hear. They pick out things. Things linger in their thinking. I heard that. I don't know. Well, what am I going to do with it? I mean, what does that mean? And it just lingers there because that's one of the ways that God speaks to us. And then he said, thirdly, that we are doers of the word. For what do we have if we don't do what we've heard? If we only come and hear what we've heard, but we don't do it, we still have nothing. But would you turn to Matthew 7 today? Because I want to talk about why the believer's foundation is secure. We know that the three things mentioned in Luke chapter 6 work. If you come to him and you hear what he has to say and you do what he has to say, you'll be secure. 
But now this morning, I want to add to that what's behind you coming and what is behind you listening and what is behind your reason for doing. There's something else that is added to this equation which makes all of this work. And there are things that are defined in the scriptures to why that they do. Now, Matthew 7 and verse 24 through 27, I am sure you're familiar with all of these verses. You should be. Therefore, verse 24, therefore, and as I said last time, therefore references what was just said or the meaning behind the things that were just said. I'm saying this, I want to alert you or inform you about this, and having said that, therefore, he says, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Let me point this out. I'll say this again two or three more times. Jesus defines a wise man as one who hears and does. Now, he knows what to do because he heard what he should do. And having heard what he should do, he realized that there is nothing else right that I can do that will relate me to God. There's not enough church programs and enough religious endeavors to make me right with God. I can't do anything else. All I can do, having come to him, is to hear what he has to say and then be willing to do it. There's no other way to please God. So a wise man, then, is a faithful man. He is faithful because he made a choice, a personal choice, which we all can make. I want to hear about the Lord. I'm coming because I want to hear. And having heard... I may have to wrestle with this. I may have to sit down, like you said in Luke 14, don't be hasty. Don't be like a lot of religious people. You better sit down first and count the cost. You sure you can do this? Are you sure you're willing to do this? What if it costs you your job? I remember the times in my own life. I've shared with them here. There were times in my life when I was a young man, a basketball coach, the years I got saved, I knew that if I live according to what I have heard, if I really begin to act like the Bible is true, I'm going to lose some friends because they're going to think I am really nuts. Because while all of them go to church, none of them believe anything. They may hear it, but <laughs> no, I ain't going to do that. So I knew this, that if I am sincere about being a Christian and I come to the Lord, then the only way I can prove that I'm sincere the only way I can demonstrate to him or to you or anybody else that I really believe this is by living it, being a doer of the word. Now, if you do anything else, at the end you get judged, which would be a fool. If I knew putting my hand to the plow was the only way I could go forward with the Lord, a wise man would do that, wouldn't he? Now, he wouldn't be very wise, though, if it got tough, because it will. If it's costly, because it will be. If it's demanding, because it is. He wouldn't be very smart if he let go of that plow and said, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Because the alternative to the plow is what? It's death. What do you go back to? If what you came out of was darkness and death, 
And since you've come to the Lord, you begin to sour a little bit. You don't have any of what you used to have. If you go back, what do you go back to? It's the same as it was. It was dark then, it's still dark. It was ugly then, it's still ugly. But that's the easy life because it requires no effort. All you do is cave in, give in, quit, don't try. If it's too much, look for something else. Take the easy way, no money down. Do that. If you're going to walk with the Lord, you're going to pay a price. It's going to cost you more ways than you realize because this is not a 100-yard dash. This is a marathon. And you've got to give it your best shot because God knows your heart if you are or not. I mean, you can't escape this. You can't escape what I just said because it is true. And if you want to walk with the Lord, the only way you can prove it is by what you do with what you said. You can't set aside what he has said and listen to the wisdom of man who designs a lot of things for us to do and a lot of noble ventures we should go and do and build and help and collect and see if we cannot make the world a better place. I mean, nobody can say that those things are ugly things, but they are never right when it excludes Christ and what he said. I don't care what you do. Jesus told his people, and he told us too, he said, your righteousness, your right deeds and right acts, and your right ventures in life are as filthy rags. Because if it is not according to what the Lord is telling us, especially in how we with our lives honor Jesus Christ, then you're wasting your time. That seems like such a terrible thing to say today because people have left Christ out of their life, out of the church. He's the name that's on the church building and somehow we sing songs about Jesus and all of that. But as far as our life, we're still living the way we want to. We have designed it for ourselves. We like it the way we have it. And if we have to do what Jesus said, what if we had to wash feet? We would be the laughing stock of this. What if we washed feet here? You know what people would say about you? Huh? What if you spoke in tongues? That's not for today. What if you laid hands on people to be healed? Oh, God isn't doing that anymore. He's given us the medical world now to do all of that. Next thing you know, you don't believe anything. You read it. It's in there, but you don't believe it. Because somebody's talked you out of it. But a wise man. I don't know who is. Somebody is. A wise man not only comes to Jesus, but he hears what he has to say, and he does it. Therefore, a wise man is, by definition, faithful. The very ones that Jesus addresses at the end when he says, well done, thou coming and doing servant. Enter into the joys that your Lord, that's all I ask you to do, is hear what I had to say and do it. Just hear what I have to say and do it. You know, when I was a basketball coach, there was many, many times when the right way was the way I wanted to do it. Now, they didn't know the right way because they're players. I was a coach. And I would say, all I want you to do now is this. If you do this, we win. But God says, if you do it my way, you win. You do it on my terms, you win. Because if Christianity is anything, it is living on Christ's terms. You resign your way, and you take up his way. You give up rights to yourself, you give him rights to you. 
and nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is too difficult for you. His word is not harsh. You just do it his way. And that's what God wants. Now, behind all of this, as I said earlier, there are three things that when you get on this foundation, if these three things are working and active in your life, you'll never come off of it. You'll make it. You'll be knocked around. You'll be hammered on in this life. You'll cry. You'll have some days that are, oh, Jesus. But you'll make it. And the first one is the most essential attitude a Christian can have in the Christian life, bar none. It's the fear of God. First of all, the fear of God. Fear is like wisdom. To fear God is a way of saying, this is why you are faithful to God. Deuteronomy 5. Would you mind looking over there once, verse 29? God says, oh, that my people had such a what? Such a heart in them. For what you are in your heart, you are. Whatever drives the heart drives the soul, the man. Oh, that my people had such a heart in them that they would fear me. Does your Bible say that? Fear and. And joins fear with something else. Fear and what? Keep my commandments. If somebody is willing to have the fear of God in their life and as a result of their fear, embrace and keep God's commandments, what then is God compelled to do graciously for them? That it may be what? Well with them. I'll tell you something. I know all of you want to things to be well with you, but this morning it can be in this life, in this time in life, it can be well with you. Amen. Not everybody has that testimony, but you could and you should. I don't care who you are, where you came from, you're tall or short or in between. I don't care anything about your background and how you grew up and I don't care anything about it. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and God has brought you to him and put you on a rock, he has put you on something that will set you free. But it won't just because you set you there. Having come to him, you've got to seek. You've got to look for. You've got to search after. Just like the promised land. Go in there, boys. It's all yours. Everywhere you go, I'll give it to you. I thought you gave it to you. It is your land. But you're not going to get it just because I said it. You're going to get it because you obey me and walk in there. And remember, I go with you every step of the way. You can't drive everybody out, but I'll help you. But you're going to have to do your part. Back to this again. This is what God wants. You got to do your part. You have to obey him. This business of fearing God and keeping his commandments, what does fear mean? Well, fear, obviously, the fear of God that compels you to keep is a motivational thing. Something inside of you that urges. And the fear of God is defined simply as your attitude towards God and about God. Your attitude, the way you think of God, the way you see God in your life. 
If he is to you as he is portrayed to be in the Bible, then you will revere him because fear means reverence. You will stand in awe of him because his people do when he appears to them because he's God. And you will fear him because he is God. He is a consuming fire, a phrase used more than once in the Bible to show that you don't want to cross God. The man who sees God as a righteous, fair judge of all the earth. Every sinner will face a fair and righteous God. Just. Nobody will be mistreated. Nobody will get anything that's not due them. Because God is fair. He is righteous. And he is holy. His standards are high and his way is narrow but not so high, not so narrow that his people cannot walk that way. Most people won't. Only a few will. Only a few. And when all the others come before God on judgment day, God will in his righteous dispensation of justice or dispensing of justice, he will give to a sinner what is due a sinner. And every sinner then will know there'll be no more victims in heaven. Be no victims up in heaven and nobody's going to have some heady lawyer to talk God. God has final say. And he'll say, you did not because you didn't want to. Or you played the religious card and made yourself famous. I never knew you. And they'll know that's true. They will know that that's true. And they will be fools. How foolish it was for you to think that God is not paying attention to everything you're saying and doing. How foolish you are to think that you're getting by with the things that nobody sees. How foolish you are to hear what God says he wants out of you and then set it aside to do something else like it doesn't matter. How foolish you are to do that. Don't you know that God keeps records? Don't you know that nothing is hidden from the Almighty, that he sees everything? He hears everything from the highest heaven to the lowest parts of the earth. There's no cave too deep. There's nowhere you can go that he's not there. He knows every thought. He knows the hairs of your head. He knows how many times you breathe and, and how many cells are in your body. There's nothing he doesn't know. And here a holy God offers you a chance to eternal life and you treat it like it's an option. How foolish, how utterly foolish people are. But there's some who aren't. There's some who see hope. The only way I can escape this life is by total dependence on God. I know he's a righteous judge. Some people know this. I mean, it, you can teach it, but they just know it. It's something God-inspired, something divine lodged in a person's heart, and they just know that this is true, that this is the way it's going to be. Their heart says, oh, God. And when other people are taking liberties with the Bible and truth, these won't. They say, no, if it costs me everything, I'm still willing to do it. I know that sounds foolish to the world, but to God, it's a challenge, it's a test. And so God says, oh, that my people had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments all the time. Then it would be well with you. You'd have a smile on your face. We'd have healthy worship again. 
There'd be a vibrance and an enthusiasm, not because things out there are looking up or looking good for you. You just know in whom you have believed and you're persuaded that he's able. You rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Everything takes on a spiritual significance. Look in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 12. I can see in Deuteronomy 31, 12 as an Old Testament picture of why we assemble ourselves together here, why we come together in the church. Listen to this, gather the people together, men and women and children, and the stranger that is within thy gates. Here's why we come together, that they may hear and that they may learn and what? Now, again, this is the motivational, foundational force that if you have it, if your attitude and regard for God is as it should be, it turns you to him to do what he said. How do you know what to do? Because I want to hear. I come. I hear. I listen. Teach me thy way, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. I don't know how to walk unless somebody tells me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to conduct my affairs unless I'm taught. I need to know something. Knowledge is a premium in Christ. And so you said he comes, bring them together so they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law. That would be faithful. Verse 13, and that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land, whether you go over Jordan to possess it, to be blessed. Isn't it amazing that God will reward us if we're willing to come, we're willing to hear, and let the truth saturate in our hearts until we go, oh, oh God, no wonder you say, who are we that you would have any regard for us? Like Paul said, I am the chief of sinners, the least of saints. Man, that mirror of the word, you look in there and I see myself, oh God. Some people have this. Before God, I am such a trivial nothing. And yet this one holy, righteous God reached down into the nothingness of life and picked you out of there and set you on a rock because he loved you. Why? Well, you hadn't done anything except sin. Well, from the foundation of the world, he knew you, and when your time came, he saved you. He put you on a rock, and hopefully he put you somewhere that you could hear the truth and not have religious gadgets thrown at you all the time. Do this and do that and try this and try that, but just simply the truth. Your children will hear too. It's not children's church here. We're talking about the assembly of all the people, which included children. No pot and potato chips here. No basketball gym here. And that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and may learn to fear the Lord your God. That's how you fear. You learn and you hear. It is so important if you keep going to the right in your Bible to Ecclesiastes, which follows Proverbs, at the very end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And this is the conclusion to the whole matter because this book talks about the dismal things in life. People are running after this and they run after this and you realize when you got it, it was vanity. It wasted your life. You want this, you want that. It was women wine, women's song and parties and stuff. 
It was vanity. So the conclusion of the whole matter is this. This is what we come to as the end. The way it should be, the only thing that's going to be right here. Verse 13 is fear God and keep his commandments. God asks no more of you than that. The phrase fear God, fearing God, the fear of God, it takes in so much of your life. Faith, patience, endurance, overcoming, even love. Instead of having 15 points on here, you could put them all under one heading, the fear of God, because this motivates everything. This motivates everything. I'm motivated to faith because of what he wants. Faith is nothing more than being faithful. Faith is nothing more than being faithful to God. To be faithful. You've heard it. Do it. Keep it. Don't let go of it. Hold on to it. That's what faithfulness is. And he said the conclusion of the whole matter is this. To fear God and keep his commandments. But in Proverbs 3, 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 16 and verse something, three different places, it says, if you fear God, you will turn away from evil. And you can turn that stuff off you've been watching. You can stay away from people who have been misleading you. If you fear God, if you put God first, if he's the chief reason for all your actions and your determinations, if you do it that way. You remember the verse in 2 Timothy 2 where it says, the foundation of God standeth sure. It's in 2 Timothy 2, 19. It said, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. That it's this, the Lord knoweth those that are his. God knows who his people are. Now we assume everybody is that goes to church because they all say they are. But God knows who are his. This is the foundation of God that standeth sure, that God knows who his people are. Obviously, referencing a foundation means that his people are founded and stable and steadfast on what he gave them to stand on, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. The world rejects him. The world hates him. The world has little to do with him and doesn't want anything to do with him. Our government doesn't either. He's like Jesus is a nuisance in this world. But for some, for a few, whatever this is going to cost us, he's my life. He's my life. And I'm willing to give up all the dumb stuff I was planning to do in this life in order just to do what he says in the Bible. The world says I'm a fool. I'm giving up my youth for some outdated, outmoded Bible. But for me, I believe a wise man will cast his anchor in that rock and know that if he tugs on it, it'll hold forever. And he lives according to what Jesus said. That's why he's here on Sunday mornings or Wednesdays. That's why they want to know. That's why they're in earnest about finding out the truth. That's why in conversations you have with these people, they go talk about the word. You don't talk about other things, but eventually you'll get around to talking about Jesus. It's like not who's going to win the game or who's going to go the furthest or who's going to win the miss whoever or be the next whatever. It's Jesus. 
As God said in Malachi, you know, whenever the righteous assembled together in the last day and they spoke often to one another and God heard it. He's in the conversation. We explain to our children why this decision we're making is because God holds us to making these decisions because you see and you begin to bring Jesus into everything. It's how we feel about Jesus. It's our attitude towards him. I remember telling one of the kids once growing up, I said, I am responsible for what happens to you. I don't mistrust you of going out and messing up stuff. I just know that things can happen. And if I do things that in my heart I shouldn't allow you to do because I don't think you're ready for it yet, then I'm missing God. I don't want to miss God. I'm putting him before you. And therefore, it's because of him that I'm making this decision. And I hope you understand, but if you don't, I'm making it anyway. Because I've got to. He's the reason. He is the reason, and he's the one that we're liable to. But this foundation, God knows those that are his and are standing on a firm foundation. You know what it is? Again, I mean, I, I've already told you one. But I want you to read this. I could quote it for you. But I want you to read it in Jeremiah. If you look over and in the middle of your Bible to the right, Jeremiah Chapter 32, may this be true with all of us, and if it's not yet, may we all desire this truth to be in our heart. 32 verse 40, because this is what he has done. And I will make a covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, listen, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Let me say this, having said that, if the fear of God is lodged in our hearts, we will not fall away. It would be a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment. There's no fear in love. If you say you love God, how can you fear God? You're missing the point. God is to be treated as a loving God dedicated your whole life to him and know that if you turn away from him, he must judge you. He's compelled to. He's God. As I've said so many times in my life, I love my mother. But there were times I was terribly afraid of her. As long as I did what she said, I had her grace. You're such a good boy. Oh, I just love you. Such a good boy. Oh, that was good. You did good because I did what I was supposed to. And when I didn't do what she told me to do, then I had terror to look at because she could turn a sweet smile into a frown, a wrinkled frown. And I knew that it was maple time. <laughs> that maple tree out in the yard. I hope that thing's cut down. There were no branches over six and a half feet high because we broke them all off to use them on me. My mother wouldn't believe that, but it was just a time in which she dispensed justice. She didn't spank me because she hated me. She didn't spank me because she wanted me to die. She didn't spank me because she tried to get me to run off. She spanked me because I disobeyed her, and that's what a mother's supposed to do. That's part of loving me. Otherwise, I'm going to grow up with my tattoos and earrings and stuff all over me as a sign of my rebellion. No, God loves us 
but he's not playing games with us. And if you're a wise man, you've got sensibilities about you, you'll realize that if you don't do what he says, you're asking him to judge you because he has to. God must judge sin. You remember in 1 Corinthians 11, when we talk about the communion, and during that communion, he says that the reason many are weak and sickly among you is because we're not doing things the way God wants us to do it. And then he goes on to say that God judges us or chastens us to keep us from being condemned along with the rest of the world. Now, he's the final judge. And to keep us from coming under his judgment, he corrects us now. Because a long time ago, he appointed you to salvation. You're his. You're going to stay on that rock. He's going to see to it. You're going to do it. That's how much he loves you. And in this life, he requires you to love him with your obedience. Jesus said, if a man love me, he will what? Keep my commandments. Why does he love? Because he fears God. He reverences God. He appreciates God. He is thankful to God. Look what God has done and all those kind of things. This is what happens when the fear of God is in our life. We become steadfast and stable. You can't talk me out of something I'm dedicated to. This is my life. I want nothing else. I want nothing else. The joy of my life. This should be what we all want, is to serve the Lord and to show it by obedience and by our faithfulness. A second thing that makes us steadfast that goes along with the fear of God and this part of coming and hearing is knowing the will of God. What can you do that's right that's not his will? Can a man do anything right outside of God's will? Now you think of it. If I can do things and be commended by God or rewarded by God for doing it, which is not what he wanted me to do, then he owes me one. And I can earn favor. If I cannot earn his favor, all I can do is cooperate with his favor. There's one thing and one thing alone he wants me to do. It's the fear of God that leads you to investigate and find out what the will of God is. And once you learn what that is, then that is the one single right thing that you're compelled to do. This is the way walking in it. In bringing this about in Philippians 2.13, it says, For God is at work in you, both to will, to be willing, and to reveal his will, both to will and to do. It's back to faithfulness again. Well, that word faith and faithfulness pops up everywhere. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In the Old Testament, God said that you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all your works in us. The things that we do, the way we choose to live are the things that God has revealed to us. So that the life that I live in this fleshly body, I live according to the will of God. Is there any other way that's right? We can't devise things and make it God's will. We can say, well, we're going to open up, and this is a good thing. 
nothing wrong with this, but I'm just saying, as a substitute for God's will, it won't work. We're going to open up a children's home in Haiti. We're going to send a team down there three or four times a month and send some money down there and, and join the other four or 500 groups down there and see if we can't make a difference. You know, it's a noble thing to do. It's a sacrifice. It takes special kind of people with special kind of commitment to do that. Who wants to stand up and say that may not be the right thing to do? Because man says, well, we're doing something good. Are we helping people? Isn't that good? Well, it seems like it would be, and I would think so, but it's not always proven to be something good because a whole lot of that's been shown to be, you know, just flesh. Wasn't God's will at all. That's hard for some people to grasp, but it may not be God's will. Knowing God's will is moving when he says to move and doing what he wants you to do as he reveals it to you in his word. If I don't know what the will of God is about things, how can I do anything? What can I do? Paul said it like this in Romans 12 too. We use this verse a lot. He said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, your thinking way, the way you think has to change from the old way, logical, reasonable, man's way. You got to turn your thinking from that way to a different way. God said in Isaiah 55, he said, your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. But he said, you have to be transformed, made into a different form by the renewing of your mind. The way you used to think and see things, it may not be the way God wants you to do it anymore. I've had evangelists tell me, oh, you need to be this, you need to go here, and you need to do that. You know, that, that's good, and somebody's going to do that, but that's not the will of God for me to be out here doing that. Actually, I got enough to do right here. And if I'm out there doing everything else, then I'm going to rob myself of the time I need here. And it's not for me to do. I'm not a jolt, a jolt, J-O-A-T, a jack of all trades. I'm not that. I can't do everything. I'm not supposed to. People want to tell you meaningful people, influential people say, boy, we need to be out here on a firing line for God. Amen. Go after it. Shoot. I'm loading my magnum every week, try to blow something up and, you know, try to get something going because there's always work to be done. My work is here. My work is you. <laughs> you know what I mean. Somebody said, you're not doing very good. Well, anyway, <laughs> concerning this renewing of the mind and the will of God, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, he said, towards the end of that verse, he said, and to desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding. Not just a hasty idea what God said, but spiritual wisdom. I heard what you said. I know what that means. I'm not sure I know how to do that. I'm not sure I know how to do it the right way. Well, then wait on the Lord. He'll show you more if you're willing to just be still and quit running and just be still. Be still. Just be still. Listen. Take a little time. Shut everything down and just talk to God. How do I do this? 
how many times you heard me say, how do I deal with this? I don't know how to deal with this. Lord, that's the hard-headedest man, woman, boy, girl I ever saw. Lord, what do I do with him or her? I've had a chance to pray that at least once. What do I do? I don't want to make a racket and a ruckus, and I want to use as much wisdom as I can. How do I do this, Lord? If I don't have some degree of wisdom from God to know how to do that, chances are I don't do anything. Then you get in trouble with people. Why don't you do something? Well, I want to. I really do. But I want to make sure I do it right. I want to make sure to do it right. I don't care what the critics say. I've been criticized by experts, summa cum laude, A-grade experts, the best. So I'm used to that. But I want to know his will. You see, knowing God's will will define, it will define your relationship with Jesus. Matthew 12 and verse 50 concerning the question asked, you know, your mother and your brethren are waiting on you outside. And Jesus said this. He said, for whoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Then who is the family of Jesus? Who is his family? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you related to him? Amen. Then he sees you as his family. He said, whoever shall do the will of my father. Most people haven't even found it yet. How can you do it if you don't know what it is? It's worth seeking after and laboring for. Laboring after. It's worth it striving after it. It's the one thing that puts you in touch with God perfectly. Perfectly. You know, it's just like praying in tongues. Here we go. A man who prays in the Spirit prays according to the will of God. It can't be wrong. And people that don't do that today can't do that anymore. They have to pray with whatever they can come up with. God has given us a way, knowing our frailty, God has given us a way to always pray according to the will of God. He said, well, how do you know what you're saying? I don't always know what I'm saying because I'm not talking to me. I'm talking to him. He knows what I'm saying. Well, it sounds like a bunch of gibberish to me. It sounds like a bunch of gibberish to a lot of people. Giddy, 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 giddy. Whatever they say in mocking us. I'm willing to trust and rest my case with God. If it is the will of God for me to pray in the spirit and thus build up my faith, then I will do that. And the more noble-minded in society say that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, I'm sure it is. Well, no, because you've heard a lot of things. I'm just saying that God gives us things to do that are his will that are so different from the way the world would do it that we reject it. Except for those few that God knows, those few that he has assigned to live this life and has made a covenant in their heart with these people, they won't turn away from him. They'll walk this way to the end of their life. If there's only a very, very few of us left, they will be one of the few, and they won't give up.
they will literally lay down their life for Jesus. Jesus said, greater love is no man than this. And a man would lay down his life for his friends. He said, you are my friends if, if you do what I tell you. I mean, it's a simple message. You put them all together. You got the fear of God. You got the will of God. You got faith, obedience, and trust. It's what Christians do because that's what we are. We're founded on this rock. God knows who his people are. In Nahum 1.7, he said, God knoweth them that trust him. He knows who does trust him. Remember in John chapter 10, when Jesus talking about the shepherd and the sheep, listen at these verses in John 10 and verse three, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. Could you agree with me then that Jesus knows the names of his own and he leads his own. Obviously not all people follow Jesus, not all church members follow Jesus, but somebody is. In John 10 and verse 14, he said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. Who knows Jesus? His sheep. Who are his sheep? They are those who follow him. Why do they follow him? Because they can hear his voice. Obviously, obviously not everybody is, but somebody is. And the ones who do hear his voice are so determined by his voice, they follow him. Not everybody follows Jesus, but somebody is. He said his sheep will. He said in John 10, 27, in a classic verse, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Isn't that simple? My sheep hear me. I know them. I've never said to them, I never knew you because I know these. These I know. They follow me. They don't stand afar off and try to quote me and, and get a big meeting and make a lot of money. They follow me. These are my sheep. I am their God. I'm not ashamed to be called their God because they follow me. What is it that they're following? His will. He has made it clear to them what he wants them to do. And a third thing. A third thing you will find with all of God's people, all of his sheep. I don't think there are any exceptions to it. All of God's people, when they are brought to him and planted on that solid rock, made stable and made steadfast, they will worship him. They will worship him. I don't know if there's any phrase in the Bible that talks about a spirit of worship, but there is spirit-inspired worship. The Holy Spirit prompts us to worship him. But without the fear of God and a reverential attitude towards God, we usually just sing songs that we've learned and very little is spontaneous that is, is given because, oh, Jesus, some of us just follow the script. While you're singing the right songs and you may be singing with others the same songs and you may be in an atmosphere of worship, it doesn't mean you're worshiping. A healthy church worships. A healthy church worships. When it begins to become infirm, could be the word weak, 
when it begins to lose its vibrancy, the first way you notice is the worship. Worship is an indication. It's a verbal outward indication with your body, whether in private or in the assembly. It's how you show God what he means to you. It's how you demonstrate. It's how you demonstrate before God. You can say anything you want to, but those who really mean it, have it in their heart, it may be raising the hands. It could be clapping the hands. You don't have to make a show in the flesh. But it's just your way, whether quietly, you may just be like this here, with a smile on your face, your thoughts are about God, you're embracing all the things he's done for you, you're glad for his goodness, you thank him for his mercy and his grace, and it's just this desire to worship, just to let him know that you really, really love him and you care about him. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 86, I think we sing this song, Teach Me Thy Way, O Lord. Well, listen to it. He said, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Only he can do that. But when he does, verse 12 says, I will praise thee, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forever. One of the things about the end time church in the last days will be its singing. One of the things that marked great revivals throughout the ages was singing. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5, Paul wrote that. There's within my heart a melody. Remember that? Jesus whispers sweet and low. I sing because I'm depressed. I sing because I'm bound. No, depressed, bound people, grieving, grievous people, they don't sing. They want sympathy. God is not the solution in their life to their problem. Anything that he has said is not near enough to solve their problems. They're in a little hole with all their gospel meetings, all their Bible readings, and all their experiences. They're in a little hole, and they're so sad, and they can't worship. And they just sort of sit there limp and undone. Remember that time by the rivers of Babylon? We wept. Psalm 137 says, we hung our harps in the willows thereof, and our captors asked us to sing the songs of Zion because the songs of Zion were known to be exuberant and enthusiastic, and, and I've watched them sing. Been there one time, and I watched them do that dance. Oh, you want to join. You just don't know if you can make your feet go right, but oh, you think, so inspiring. These are not always religious people. I mean, the unreligious people do the same thing. It's more or less a political thing, but there's something exuberant about it. But, you know, you hang your harps in the midst of the willows and your captors want you to sing one of the songs of Zion. They said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And then Psalm 126 said, when the Lord turned our captivity, we were like those that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter. Now, don't get into that laughing stuff. 
But then was our mouth filled with laughter. They had merry hearts. They made melody in your hearts. There's something about that testimony that Christians ought to have that goes beyond, listen, some of the hymns in the Bible are some of the most wonderful, outside the Bible inspired words ever. I heard one, two or three come to church this morning. Amazing grace. Isn't that good? It has a message in it. It has a message. Some of this stuff today is so bouncy and groovy, it doesn't have a message. I don't like it, but just, you know, I grew up in the dark ages. You know that. The great song written out in the ocean, you know, the man had lost all of his family or lost his children out there. You remember that? It is well with my soul. What an old, outdated hymn. When peace like a river. Oh, come on. Let's get something. No, I tell you what, I can identify with a lot of songs. He's all I need. You know, I made a decision like that. I'm working on it. That's the way it ought to be. Come together twice a week. How long do we have to stay? Long enough to sit still for about an hour to hear the word and up enough to dance a little bit, clap your hands, or worship. But you get a chance. You get an opportunity. You did pretty good this morning. I thought, wow, they're doing really good. Let me show you something. Turn to Hebrews 2 as we come to a halt. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. This is a quote, I think, from Psalms 22, but it has to do with Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory, that would be us, to make the captain of their salvation, that would be Jesus, to make him perfect or mature or complete through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, now notice, this is what he does with his own where they are, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, I will sing praise unto thee. Who will sing praise unto thee? Now, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about Jesus? Well, we are. He is. You don't have to guess. I'll do the guessing for you. He's talking about Jesus. How in the world is Jesus going to sing in his church? Where is he? He lives with, oh, I know he's in your heart. But how will Jesus sing in this church unless he sings in us? It's within us. The prompting of the Holy Spirit to magnify him, to sing those songs to him. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what men say. You know, once you just get hooked in and you just think about what you're saying, and if you really believe that, it's easy. It's easy. It is wonderful. Many there be that are against me. Many there say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. That's the psalm. There is no help for him in God. But thou, o Lord, art a shield. How can you not sing that and not take comfort in it? Oh, for thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. I cried unto the Lord, and he heard my voice. He heard me out of his holy hill. What did he hear? He heard me cry because I'm at the end of my ropes. I can't do anything. I don't know what to do, Lord. I don't know what to do. He heard me. 
and he rescued me. And in the midst of praise, let God arise. The devil doesn't like praise. When Paul and Silas got to singing in that prison, their chains fell off their feet. You know one of the last things Jesus did with his disciples? Turn to Matthew 26. One of the very last things that he did. In Matthew 26 and verse 30, in the upper room, he talked, he washed their feet. They had all those things said about the Holy Ghost. And he's getting ready at the end of chapter 16 to go across the valley, the Kidron Valley up, just not very far, it's not very high, just a little bank over there, the Mount of Olives. He's getting ready to go over there in this place to be alone and to pray. Before they left, it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Does your Bible say that? Amen. Jesus sang, didn't he? If Jesus sang a hymn, they would include him. If Jesus sang, I can sing. If he saw the value of singing, so should I. It must be something that was important because they didn't leave the meeting until they had sung. Psalm 106, I think, is verse 12, said they heard his word, they sang his praise. We do that the other way around, but that's okay. They heard his word, they sang his praise. I remember one time I did that. Back in the old Clay Street Church, I told the singers, I said, don't lead singing this morning. When the sermon's over, y'all can come up and sing. But I'm going to start at 10 o'clock. So I got up there at 10 o'clock, about a third of them were here. You know, the miracle hadn't happened yet. <laughs> the 10 o'clock miracle, the five after miracle, when they all get here at the same time. So I'm preaching. About a third of the church is there. And they're walking in going, like you're not supposed to do this. Then after it was over, we had the song service, which was a dud. Well, I don't want to sing now because I didn't, you know. It might have been better than that. I don't remember all those details. But the point of it is they heard his word, they sang his praise. It is natural, it is proper, and it is right for us to sing. But to sing from our heart the words that we're inspired to sing, the words that we really believe in all of our hearts that we ought to sing, Colossians 3 said, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You find me a man that has worship in his heart. Show me a soul anywhere. Whatever situation, problem they have, condition they're in, you show me somebody that sings to the Lord and worships the Lord. I'll show you somebody that's doing really well in life. Show me a person who says he's a Christian and doesn't sing. There's no way through the years of noticing here and there, there's no way I couldn't say that I don't notice that some people and some good moments in the church are not involved. There is really something wrong in your life. You're not healthy. You're not healthy. I don't know what you're spiritually eating, but it's not helping you at all. You're becoming dull and indifferent to God. I say that as a pastor it's sort of an admonishment. There's something unhealthy spiritually about you when you don't enter into worship or when you avoid the worship to get here after it's over. Something's wrong. Say what you want to say, something is wrong. Well, I just don't like to sing. You sing anyway. Well, I just don't like all of that. Well, you learn to like it anyway. Because God's making you a new creature. 
I'm going to close with this. We sing this song too, Psalm 50 and verse 23. It says, whoso offereth praise glorifies me. And whoever orders his life right, whoever ordereth his conversation aright, God says, I will show him my salvation. That's like Psalm 91, I will show him my salvation. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him that orders his manner of living right, I will show him the salvation of the Lord. But praise is in there. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, with gratitude and thanksgiving this morning, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us, for the time and the space you've given us. We are grateful to be here. We are delivered this morning from all complaints, from all murmurings. We're aware that we are here by invitation. Had you not delivered us from that miry clay, we would still be in it. And having been brought out of it, deliver us from embarrassment and shame and everything else. And give us grace to choose Jesus. And I pray, Lord, you will bless these people before whom I stand, that they will be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, never swerving to the left or to the right. And for those who are not well, to those who have lost their song, whose harps are in the willows, who don't listen as keenly as they used to, those who are struggling with the attitude they have towards you. I ask for your recovery this morning, for your movement into their life, to bring them back to where they should be. Indeed, all of us, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks this morning in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. I said,
Sunday morning service. My home is in heaven. Praise God. Amen. 